You're listening to 50 Plus a Tip, the show for strippers, ethical sluts, and other open-minded hoes. Hey guys, welcome back. It's Danica, and I am joined, it seems as always, by Riley. And we are sitting down with a former professor of mine, Tamara Odohorti, or Odohorti, or Odortri, or every other way I butcher her last name. And she is a lecturer at the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University, which is actually the number one university in Canada for criminology. So that's saying something right there. But she's also has several research projects and publications under her belt related to the impacts of criminalization, victimization and commercial sex work, legal analysis of human trafficking, and other human rights and knowledge production publications. So she's put a lot out there. She knows her stuff. And prior to her academic involvement, Tamara also spent decades working alongside sex workers and other sex worker allies, primarily in the Vancouver downtown east side and during the height of the missing women's crisis throughout the Picton trials and its related media frenzy through the 2010 Olympics, the BC Provincial Inquiry into the Missing Women's Crisis, and through the Bedford case and Suave cases that were the legal cases as they made their way through the court systems. So, you know, all that being said, she knows her shit, and she is an amazing professor, an amazing sex worker ally, and you guys are going to love this episode. It's super educational, super funny, but because we had so much to talk about this episode, I had to break it down into two parts. I know you guys love those two-parters. So this first part you're going to listen to is me and Riley discussing with Tamara um, all the questions we had for her. And the second part will be us addressing all the questions you listeners sent in for Tamara to answer. So sit back and enjoy this episode and be prepared to learn a fuck ton of stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Tamara. I'm very happy to be here. So our first question actually is, well, you're not a sexer yourself. So how did you become, (laughs) so how did you become so involved in the sex worker community? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Who let you in? <laughs> uh, I think my parents are still fully expecting me to come out to them um, on a daily basis. And they're like, come on, tell us how you know all this, really. Um, but no, I, I can't. I can't claim to ever have actually worked in the industry myself. Uh, I came into this uh, not ever intentionally. <laughs> it was. It was. Uh, it wasn't like I set out for this. Um, I was in law school and I had started studying, obviously I came from a crim background and I started studying about the law and I found that uh, there were some really different opinions about various aspects of criminalization that I hadn't been exposed to before. And so then I had started volunteering because I found that in law school, you're, it's a very elite ivory tower type of a position. And I found we were learning a lot about kind of how to be a lawyer, but we weren't learning learning about the impacts of those laws, their history, why we have the law that we have. And so I was really missing that piece. And so I started volunteering in the community. And one of the first places I started volunteering was actually um, an organization in Vancouver that is the most abolitionist organization um, that, that, that exists in Canada. Um, and so it was, it was, it was one of those stunning kind of a moment where I thought, I'm a feminist. I'm an anti-violence person. Why don't I fit here? This didn't make sense to me that they would have such uh, a different perspective on some of this than I had. And so I kept questioning um, some of their statements around, uh, you have to agree that all porn and prostitution is violence against women. And I said, well, hang on, Um, double things. (laughs) First of all, I know a lot of people in the queer community who are like, hey, look, um, having sexual representation of diversity is actually a very freeing experience. And it's actually really important for people to be able to see different versions of sex so that you can actually combat this heteronormativity that exists and they basically told me to shut up and I said oh and I'm not very good at shutting up which I think you know (laughs) Um, and so from there I looked for different experiences and I I connected with Pace Society in in downtown east side and and they took every other little friend in terms of ideas about sex work and basically chucked it out the window and uh, I started from scratch and I learned from the people who you ought to learn from but who unfortunately the way that academia works you often don't hear from so that's how I got started in all this and I've never looked back um, I think I mean I started in the year 2000 and I'm not sure if 
if you are familiar with all the dates and everything, but at that time, it was actually the height of the, the women who were going missing from the downtown east side. Um, and there was quite an extreme degree of um, uh, animosity between policing agencies and people who are working and living in the streets. And so this was a real eye-opener to me because I'm a very privileged individual who always thought, if you're in trouble, you call police. Um, and I learned very quickly that is that is not actually what a lot of people get to do. For a lot of people, calling police can bring more problem um, in their lives. And so it was a real eye-opener in so many ways. Um, but one of the biggest ones, of course, is, is that I'm, I'm working alongside people whose lives are literally being endangered by the system that we have set up and allowed in terms of allowing predators to literally pick people off of the streets. And so when you start from that, um, it's really hard to walk away uh, because of the people that I've known, people I've uh, lost along the way. You know, so going from that to then the trial that happened and the massive media attention to that, then came on the whole issue of human trafficking right, where we started turning our attention to this. The Vancouver Olympics happened, and I was heavily involved um, at the time with all of these procedures around how do we protect people in the community uh, from the security apparatus that's about to descend on, on Vancouver. Um, and then, then there was the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry, both provincially and then nationally. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> um, the Bedford case went through the court system, Suave went through the court system, and then we ended up with the new PCPA or PSIPA, however you want to uh, talk about it. And so I've just, it's, it's, it's something you just can't leave once you know about it and once you know all the people and whose, whose lives are being so heavily impacted um, by all of these larger than them issues. Definitely. This might be a, a kind of difficult question to sum up, but um, I know you've had 15 years experience basically exclusively researching sex work. What have been some of your biggest takeaways? Um, people who work in the sex industry are remarkable individuals who have taught me more about feminism and social justice than in any other circle I've been in. Um, I would say one of the biggest things that I've learned along the way is the diversity um, of experience, the diversity of work. I mean, there's so many different types of sex work that exist out there. And I think we're constantly focusing really narrowly on very specific, you know, the most obvious ones. And we're really doing disservice to that. But I would say diversity in terms of who works in the industry. It's everyone, anyone, um, for you know, short periods of time, for decades, uh, you know, dabbling in various forms, in and out. Um, I would say diversity is kind of the name of the game in terms of clients. Uh, it's everyone, again. Um, client needs uh, and experiences um, in terms of privilege, educational stat, I mean, everything. I would say one of the biggest tech takeaways is how hard it is to generalize about anything in the sex industry. Probably the biggest things you can generalize are about like the effects of the law. <laughs> That's probably one of the, one of the pretty consistent issues. And even that there's, there's diversity in that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the hardest thing is the question you just asked me. <laughs> so, I guess it's another kind of generalization, but I think this one might be a little easier. Um, from what you've seen and heard through your research and just, you know, having friends in the industry and everything like that, in your opinion, what are some of the incorrect stigmas that currently surround uh, sex work or sex workers as a whole? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a biggie. Um, I would say uh, one of the big ones, of course, is this idea that all sex work is violence or this ideological position that the work itself is violence against all women. And it is very gendered the way that statement is, is said for a reason. And that's because it's how it's discussed, right? The idea here is that the presence of a commercial sex industry uh, is a symptomatic of just how misogynistic our society is. And I, and I challenge that and I don't agree with that position, but I would say that's one of the, the biggest ones that is actually influencing policy, law, public opinion, discourse, and it kind of um, seeds a lot of the stigma that currently exists. But I would say other stigmas would be around things like health. 
right? This idea that uh, the commercial sex industry actually makes things less healthy in terms of whether it's STIs or addiction issues or whatever it might be. I would say no, again, we've got it wrong there. Um, I would say that sex workers probably are the best educators around sexual health that exist. Um, that's who I would turn to if I had any questions. Um, but of course, I've benefited from 20 years of this, so I don't really have questions on that anymore. <laughs> I've learned a lot along the way, so thank you to everyone who's done that teaching to me. Um, but I would say that's, that's again, one of the ones that, that just needs to be flipped completely on its head, um, this idea that sex workers are somehow less likely to be informed about their sexual health. I mean, how ridiculous. I know to you both that's, that's very clear, <laughs> but I mean, to make a business case for it, essentially, which is another thing I would say is a misconception about sex workers. Sex workers are, are entrepreneurial. These are business people. These are individuals who are going to, you know, they have the, the, the best knowledge, I think, of businesses, business practices, economics, marketing, advertising, um, uh, customer service and clients. The skill set is, is quite remarkable. Um, and it's so disappointing you never get to be proud of it. Mm-hmm. That's actually something I literally spoke to my mom. The, question, the conversations we have, you know, um, about sex work, as I've talked to you before about, um, are few and far between with my mother, um, out of respect for her comfort level. It's not, you know, that's totally fine. Um, and one of the things we were talking about was me retiring from sex work and, you know, applying for jobs. And, you know, she's like you adamant that I go for future education and <laughs> pushing my master's. We all, uh, um, y'all, y'all behind me. I appreciate it. Um, and yeah. one of the things she said was, you know, there's a lot of, and it was kind of, it may actually like caught me off guard. She, in le- different words, said that there's a lot of skills you've obtained through your career in this that you can use, such as blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, mom, I see you. Like, I was proud. Yeah. But it's true. Like like you just said, it's sad that, and I know a lot of us feel bad that we can't put it on our resume because, like you just said, yeah. those skills that come with it um, far exceed anything I learned in another career, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I love the kind of question – can you explain this gap on your resume? And it's like, yeah, sure. I was a CEO. I was a marketing manager. Yeah. I was an accountant. I was, like, yeah, yeah, I worked in PR, like everything. Yeah, HR, everything. <laughs> um, continuing on with that question, um, what do you think contribute to those um, those misunderstanding, misunderstandings and that mis, um, misinformation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, first of all, Riley, I've heard you also push her to the masters. So well done. We'll get her there. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, um, I would say the things that contribute to a lot of this are obviously much bigger than any one of us, and they're really structural in nature. I think that we all have a part to play, and there's a lot we can do as individuals in challenging those kind of stereotypes and, and myths and stigmas. But I do think that they're rooted in structure. Um, there, are, there are very clear issues here around gender, sexuality, uh, racism um, that, that play huge, huge impacts um, on how, again, the, the individual experiences every part of their day. So, so they are very rooted. But I would say one of the big ones is certainly around gender assumptions and sexuality. Um, you know, women, and, and again, I use the, the binary women because that's historically all we've been willing to look at. Um, but the idea that, that sex for women is supposed to be procreative, right? And it's supposed to be controlled by men and the state, right? The state actually has an interest in controlling women's reproduction because the state is inherently linked to a capitalist structure that actually requires us all to have things like a family unit, you know, to create children and produce for the state these children. Um, our, our roles are very prescribed. And I think one of the things that sex workers do is they resist those roles. They, they take that idea of what women are supposed to do and where sex is supposed to be according to these ideas, and they say, no, that's actually not it. And I would say that there's a very class-based element to that, too, because I actually think that, that women, men, folks who don't identify on the binary, um, actually have been selling sex in various forms for thousands of years across every culture. And it's because very often it's a piece that you have to barter with. It is a service you can provide. And whether, no matter what the culture or other, other circumstances around you, that can sometimes be the only thing that you have. And so it's a very, uh, very uh, a class-based understanding to think that people have alternatives because mm-hmm. there have not always been alternatives. And so when people use whatever's at their disposal, why are we judging them for that? Right. That's should just be a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually really like that, that concept and I completely agree. Um, and that's something that me and Riley have said before too on the podcast, you know, 
Um, there's that saying, you know, if you're good at selling, don't do it for free. And growing up as women, a lot of us are sexualized uh, against our will, yeah. even at very young ages. And when you become oh, of yeah. age and you start to realize, like, why don't I profit off the male gaze? Why don't I? Clearly, there's something there that people want. So how do I make this a business? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a lot of us had that mentality. And that's what brought us into it was, you know, instead of just being victimized by the male gaze, I'm going to take advantage of this and, you know, yeah, use it to my advantage. Um yeah. Do any of the stigmas that sex workers receive bleed onto you because of your proximity to the sex work community and the research you've done and because you are very open about being a sex worker ally? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm not going to whine about that. I figure that's actually a compliment. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's fine with me. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely, I've, I've certainly had lots of, of um, people with arched eyebrows looking at me, uh, questioning. And again, like even, even people in my personal life wondering, you know, oh, is she finally going to come out at some point? And again, I, I consider that to be a compliment um, in terms of, you know, I have such respect for people who work in the industry. And um, so I don't mind at all being lumped in and I think it's uh, just more I've got to just be clear because I don't want to misrepresent myself and my experiences um, but I would say some of the bigger ones are certainly in kind of academic um, in feminist groups and academic groups in legal environments there are a lot of people who will assume that you are too close perhaps to the to the people so that you become more of an activist than, than somebody who is purely objectively academic but personally I subscribe to a form of academia that says that whole idea of objectivity is actually not to be chucked out because um, I don't think any of us can suspend our personal reference that much and to that degree and I don't think it's necessarily even a, a, a useful practice I think that really just allows us to uh, use essentially uh, an excuse for failing to see certain aspects, particularly the human and the relational uh, components. Um, so, so yeah. So in terms of, I mean, I've, I've certainly been, um, I've not received positions. Um, I have, uh, I have been disinvited from groups because of my stance on, on all of this um, and the ethics that you bring make other people kind of squirm a little bit because I, I won't take part in kinds of research that are not participatory or collaborative and that don't take very good care to ensure that the people who are most impacted are the ones who are centered in a project. Um, so that puts you on the outside, but I feel like I'm in good company. Uh, well, welcome. We're glad to have you here. It's you. a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so I know during your research, you started focusing on um, on-street sex work, then you changed to off-street sex work. Off-street sex work. Sorry yeah. about that. What made yeah. you want to shift that focus? Um, it wasn't me, actually. <laughs> uh, that was the people I was working with. So um, the work that I've done, particularly the, those projects, the bigger projects, uh, have been always collaborative. So I've never worked on my own. Um, and that's because I don't work in the industry. I don't have that experience. So I lend the skill base that I have, which you know is obviously years and years of education. I know the language of the law. I know the language of research and methods. And I know the damage that's been done to people through poor methods and through misrepresentation. So I have always worked really, really hard to ensure that whatever I do is actually able to sustain and to make it through any kind of scrutiny um, by the people who are completely opposed to my ideological perspective. So I try to bring those rigorous standards to the work that I do, but that's my contribution. And in terms of choosing things like, you know, what ought we to study? Um, who is not currently included in the discourse that exists out there? Back in the early 2000s, off-street workers weren't included, right? All of the work prior to that, well, there's maybe two projects across Canada, but all of the, most of the work then was focused exclusively on the street side of the business. And what these workers were saying is, hey, I've also worked off street and it looks really different from this. And that there are so many people's experiences that are totally ignored by policy, by law, by people who talk about this stuff. And so they said, we need to turn that gaze and we need to see how other people manage all of these different kinds of work environments because we could actually probably learn a lot about how to be in a safer environment and what's required in order to stay healthy in this kind of an industry. So they were the ones who said, we need to look off street. And so that's what I started to do. Honestly, when I started this work, I, um, I wasn't sure what I would find. 
and I was actually a little bit worried uh, that I would find like really high rates of violence in the off-street side because we see ridiculously high rates of violence on the streets. And I thought, I don't, you know, I was a bit worried about those findings, thinking, is that really going to help sex workers' rights? But I figured, you know, again, that's why we do research, right, is to find this stuff out. And I ended up being totally wrong. <laughs> and that's that's great. That's that's wonderful. It's it's not a bad thing to be wrong um, at all. And it's it, it allowed me, again, to be really um, skeptical of the results and findings as they were coming in. Um, but, you know, we found that the, the experience for a lot of off-street workers is so dramatically different than street-based workers that it's, it's hard to even conceive of the same law applying to these two different groups. And then when you start teasing apart the off-street forms, it's, again, it's like so impossible to think of the same law applying to people who, you know, sell sex and webcam work versus uh, film work versus dancing versus, you know, direct service provision versus escorting versus massage parlor work versus working for a third party versus working independently versus, you know, working in fetish and BDSM and fantasy fulfillment. It is, it's, um, it's such a broad industry. And so, so that's kind of what's got me stuck with it. It's, it's so challenging to actually find ways to address all of the, all of the issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, So something that comes up a lot, and I'm sure you'll say the same thing when sex work is brought up is, oh, they're all sex trafficked. (laughs) No, no one makes that choice. Um, (laughs) We doing it. We jump in. So, I mean, we only have, you know, so much time, but um, is sex trafficking a real concern? And if it is, how much of a concern is it? Sure, sex work trafficking is a concern. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm concerned about child abuse. I'm concerned about the overdose crisis. I'm concerned about the rise in anti-Asian racism. And I'm concerned about colonialism and its impacts. Of course we should be concerned. Um, is there evidence to show that there has been a dramatic rise in sex trafficking in Canada? No, there's not. Is there evidence to show that sex trafficking is dramatically higher in terms of violence against women than other forms of violence? No, there's not. Are we using a definition of trafficking that is not appropriate in terms of what people often think of with the idea of sex trafficking versus what we're prosecuting? Yeah, there's big problems on that one. Um, this has been one of those subject areas, you know, I remember I said when I came into starting to do this research, I was, everything I knew, I thought I knew was thrown out the window. Um, that happened again when it came to looking at this issue of trafficking. Um, and, and more than that, it was, it was that everything that I was told, there was no, there was literally no evidence for. I mean, we did one of our first, I had, I had no choice but to look at trafficking. So I kept getting invited on panels and they say, oh, well, you're an expert on trafficking. And I say, What? I'm not an expert on trafficking. I've never talked to anybody who's ever told me that they were a victim of trafficking. They're like, oh, yeah, but your research on the off-street side of the industry, we know it's all trafficking. I was like, oh, do we? (laughs) And so I said, fine, if I'm going to be called as an expert on this, damn, we're going to go find out about this so I can speak to it from a position of of knowledge. And so I did. Um, And this coincided with the Olympics coming. And one of the key things about the Olympics was everybody starts to run around and says, oh, we're going to get 80,000 to 100,000 victims of trafficking. You're going to be brought into Vancouver. And you'll see this repeated for the Super Bowl, for FIFA World Cup, for pretty much any large-scale sporting event. We'll start hearing about all the trafficking victims are coming in. And so, you know, we said, well, hang on. Like, let's Before we jump to that conclusion, let's go and find out what's actually happened in other countries for other large sporting events. And so we start looking through the research, and there's literally nothing. There's no evidence this has actually happened. And then there's a project out of Cambodia where they actually said, hang on, let's go find out about this. Because the first study was actually about Cambodia, where they referenced 40,000 people. And then those individuals said, actually, that's not the conclusion from the study. It's been twisted. And that twisted statistic has actually been reproduced in UN documents, which has then been used internationally. So there is no origin for this idea of 80,000 to 100,000 or 40,000 people being trafficked for large sporting events. There isn't. And we certainly did not see that in the Canadian context for the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. There actually were no police charges relating to trafficking that arose from the Vancouver Olympics. And think about the security apparatus. 
right? I'm not sure if you remember if you were working during the Olympics here. I think you started working after that day. It was just a long time ago. Um, but uh, you're, you're too young. Thank you. Um, but <laughs> at the time, Thank you for saying the, the security apparatus was so massive. Like, it's so massive. You couldn't move. You couldn't go anywhere without running into some form of surveillance. Mm-hmm. So the idea of 80,000 people being in people's basements, mm-hmm. like, but how, how did we not see them? Right? How do how do we not notice these eighty thousand individuals? It's basically the entire you know municipality of, of like Langley, for example, yeah. um, just kind of not being noticed. The not, it's it's so silly, it, you know, when you actually look at this stuff. It's it's so ridiculous that people make big money. They make big money out of it. You know, the whole anti-trafficking movements. It, it actually feeds people's jobs. These are their jobs now. Is, is to try to bring awareness to this, and so. With this whole trafficking piece, um, I ended up then looking at the Canadian numbers and looking at the law. And we found that when we first, our first prosecutions, which I'm using air quotes, and I realize you can't see me. So (laughs) (laughs) the first prosecutions that Canada reported internationally didn't happen. We, we've reported cases from 1997, 1998, 2001. Um, There's about five cases that we reported here that happened prior to Canada even getting anti-trafficking laws and yet we presented these as if they were human trafficking cases what actually happened is the department of justice was asked to find cases where they thought looked like what we would expect trafficking to look like so these aren't even convictions and then we looked at the other reporting that we do um, to the U.S. with their, their trafficking persons report that they do annually. And we found that what we were using is this category called trafficking-related, and it wasn't trafficking-specific. So these aren't the actual criminal charges of trafficking that were being counted. It was anything that the individuals thought were related to trafficking that were being counted. So there was all these issues around counting and the definitions and how it's being applied. Now we have then the PSIPA that comes in, and you actually see almost a complete replacement of the pimping charges with trafficking charges. So today, what we're doing is we're not going after international organizations or people who are being smuggled or being taken from other countries like the movies tell us is happening. Instead, what we're dealing with with our trafficking provisions is we're charging individual people for pimping. They now get trafficking. Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, this is pre-sex work now, but I always pictured sex trafficking like the movie Taken. Yeah. Like that is how I pictured it until I mean, and yeah, I don't think and that was exactly how it was here in 2010 before you got here. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was 80,000 cases of Taken. <laughs> exactly like that. <laughs> but um, I, I do really understand what you mean about um, kind of manipulated statistics or like pseudoscience. I'm studying stats at the moment at, at SFU. And it's, yeah, once you start really understanding where these numbers come from, you start looking at research and you're like, T- tell me about this. Like, my favorite is nine and ten, do- like, nine out of ten doctors agree, you know? <laughs> I don't want to talk about one, ten. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's actually one of yeah. the biggest take. Well, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways from taking uh, your class. It was, hands- I, it was hands down one of my favorite, it, it was the favorite class I ever took. Also, probably because it's, you know, my subject matter. <laughs> yeah. But no, you're also a fab, you're fabulous at what you do. Um, but that, I remember that being one of the biggest things I remember was when you're reading a study, like who put the money into it? Like, you know, who, who is it? Who's putting that out there? And once you start looking at that, you're like, oh, there's a lot of these studies that should really not even be considered. Um, so uh, there is a part there where you, a few questions back, where you threw out some cases and acronyms that are going to fly over people's heads. So, uh, the, and, and trust me, because I talk with everyone once in a while, people, a blank stare. So uh, the Bedford case, uh, Bill C-36, uh, PCPA, um, et cetera. Can you explain what those are and what their implications are? Um, yeah, okay. So in terms of, of how the law changed, um, if we go back... It was in 2005 that we got the criminal laws relating to trafficking. So that's when we first criminalized this behavior called um, trafficking, including human trafficking, organ trafficking, everything else. Um, And then it was in 2007 when the first cases started to come forward challenging the laws relating to the commercial sex industry. So 
at the time we're receiving all this information around trafficking, there's also been resistance in the commercial sex work industry about the way the laws have been um, impacting sex workers. So we've got these two things happening that are diametrically opposed at the same time. Sex workers chose to go to the court system. And so we had the case out of Ontario, Bedford, and then we had a case out of Vancouver called Suave, which was Sex Workers United Against Violence. They were very similar cases in a lot of ways because they challenged very similar laws. But one of the big differences is that the Suave case was also about Section 15 of the Charter, which included the equality provision. And so what they were trying to argue, too, is that there's a very clear impact that, that happens along all these differential bases based on gender, sexuality, precarious um, housing, addiction, mental health. Um, all these things actually have a role to play here, too. That case got stopped at its first instance, right, because the government turned around and said, actually, we don't think that an organization should be able to come forward to this case on behalf of individuals. It ought to be individuals who have to bring this case forward. And what Suave argued is that actually this is the safest way for people to access justice because asking an individual to come forward with their name on this stuff will have implications for decades. They also tried to argue that you had to actually be uh, facing charges of each of the different sections in order to challenge them, which would be really hard to do. It's really hard to be challenged, you know, to be charged with both living on the avails as well as procuring as well as, you know, material benefits. So, so they challenged all of this and that actually went to the Supreme Court of Canada and they made a major win for access to justice for all marginalized groups that now can say that you can actually come forward as an organization. It's actually the most efficient way of doing this. So that was sex workers. Who won that one? You're welcome. Um, and then the other one was the Bedford case. And this one, they argued primarily around Section 7 of the Charter, which is the protection for your rights and liberty and security of the person. And they argued that the criminal laws actually uh, infringe those rights and that they infringe those rights in an unacceptable way. And so they, they won that. They went all the way through to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in the end, the workers uh, were able to prove through all of the like, huge amounts of social science evidence that exists out there that there are some seriously wrongful impacts of the criminal law that actually make things more vulnerable and that increase people's susceptibility to victimization. So once they won that, what happens with Canadian law is that sends it back into the political realm. So the courts can only do so much. Right. Ultimately, law is made in the political realm. And so what happened after the Supreme Court of Canada declared that those are unconstitutional and that they unjustifiably infringe sex workers' rights is it gets punted then into Parliament. And so Parliament is, it's, it's a political beast, right? This is where ideology, your politics, you know, how much do you care about the voting public? Um, do you want to get back in again? Because if you want to get back in, you better find a way to get the majority of the public voting for you. Um, and at the time, there was a Conservative government that was in power under um, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And uh, the Justice Minister was Peter McKay. And they were both very entrenched in conservative views around sex work. And uh, they were sold um, by this whole idea of trying to criminalize the demand. Um, but they didn't actually buy in entirely to this Nordic model where you're supposed to decriminalize the workers and criminalize uh, the clients. They actually did this weird, perverted model of um, because ultimately that particular political party does actually still believe in these, these ideas of morality as being infused in our criminal law. So they drafted this thing called the PCPA or Bill C-36, which is the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. And think for, about the title, right? So people say, oh, well, this new law protects sex workers. No, it doesn't. And it was never designed to protect sex workers or to make sex work safer. It's very clear in its goals, and that is protection of community from sex workers and then the protection of exploited persons, which I would argue it fails in that capacity as well. So that piece of legislation came forward. Um, groups like the Liberal Party at the time heavily criticized it, said that's terrible, it's not even an effective piece of, of law, even if it was constitutional. But then, of course, as soon as they get into power, nothing happens, right? There was actually supposed to be a review. Uh, Trudeau has been petitioned several times. His justice minister has been petitioned, you know, to say, hey, remember how much you thought this was really bad law? Why are you having it stick around then? Um, but it just hasn't been politically safe enough for them to go to bat for sex workers. So we keep We've got the law. However, it's now been challenged in at least four, I believe now, different cases where lower court judgments have ruled that these the new laws of the BCPA are also unconstitutional and unjustifiably infringe people's rights. So 
the fact that it's happening in the court system again is a good thing. But the thing is, if you don't appeal to the next level of court, that decision only ever has an impact on the parties involved in the actual litigation. Mm. So it never goes beyond and it can't actually um, affect things on a wider basis. Mm -hmm. I love the idea that political parties feel like they need to protect communities from sex workers. Like if you boil that down, like protect communities from pleasure. Well, obviously you're going to come, you know, fuck all your husbands, you know, and then traffic all your children. That's my Tuesday, to be honest. That's my Tuesday and Wednesdays are reserved for fucking husbands and trafficking children. You're busy days. Those are busy days. I'm packed. Trust me, 80,000 we did in 2010. Crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> good year for us. Um, so, okay, yeah. So, in short, our laws suck, and they're fully, hap- happily sucking. Um, hey, like us. <laughs> <laughs> they're just not going to be paid as well. Um, so, obviously, legal changes need to be made, and we're seeing that with people continually trying to challenge and some being successful at it. Uh, what are some uh, real legal changes that you believe should occur? And what would their desired results be? And, and also, how could we even achieve this? <laughs> <laughs> question question of the millennial. <laughs> Those feel a little unfair. They're kind of big. <laughs> you have 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I would that I'm not always the person to answer a lot of that stuff. I mean, I yes, I have this knowledge, I've done this research, but I don't work in the industry. So ultimately, the people who ought to be making all the decisions around regulation are the people who experience the industry. I mean, it's so ludicrous. I would never walk in to, say, doctors, associations, and say, so I got it. I can tell you what the standards are for surgery next week. I have no idea. I have no clue. It's not, I mean, why would I possibly do? And yet here's exactly what we do. Um, so I would say that we're completely ass backwards in, in that capacity. And so that's going to be one of the first things that happens is there has to be, well, first there has to be decriminalization. Um, it's been shown all over the, everywhere that these laws are, they're, they're just, they're terrible. They're, they do not come near even their goal of protecting communities. They don't. These don't end the commercial sex industry. We've been doing forms of prohibition through criminal law for about 200 years here. Okay? Various different forms. We keep tweaking it, trying something new with the criminal law. It's still the criminal law. This is not going to be effective in addressing the things that we're concerned about here. So that's got to be step one as this issue is decriminalization happens. But then in terms of what do we do next? Well, this is where I think a lot of us who are currently talking and taking up space need to basically sit the fuck down. Right, Because this is where we are not any longer the experts. Yep, I can tell you lots about the kind of laws that have worked in other workplaces. And then the workers need to be the ones to say, hmm, I wonder how that would translate in my workplace. And I think we need to be open to the diversity that's going to need to be um, used for the various different forms of the industry. Um, But I think that all of that is targeted to people who are already in more privileged positions. So I think that none of this is going to address people who are concerned with what we see on the streets, you know, people who are concerned with people who are dealing with addiction issues or who are in poverty and precariously housed and are taking a client because they literally need their rent check that day. They would never take this client otherwise. You know, there's questions here around what is consent in those kinds of circumstances. And so I think that we need to really revisit things like our economic policies. There are very specific and gendered issues going on here in terms of who it is who is dealing with more precarious housing and is dealing with lower um, income. And so I think that we need to look very seriously at how we are delineating these economic options and what safety net we've built in. Um, I think that when we look at youth, for example, this exploitation of youth, um, one of the greatest risk factors for people who start in the industry as teens is whether they've ever been in government care. That's horrible that that is one of the biggest risk factors for somebody being sexually exploited. So I would say that we have so much work to do on ourselves in terms of creating spaces that actually address some of the um, root causes. And those have to deal with socioeconomics. And that's probably broader than you were thinking. Yeah. You were thinking more specifics. Um, but I would say, too, that, that we have to also deal with this in the context of family law. We have to deal with it in the context of immigration law. We have to look at taxation. You know, like we have to look at this from so many different areas because fundamentally we're talking about labor. 
And so anything that would apply in any other context of labor has to be considered in the context of the sex industry too. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to break it down a little bit or to touch on something you had just said, uh, decriminalization being something that has been, you know, um, shown as like the way, um, a lot of people, the next question is why, why is decriminalization good? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I know your expertise are obviously, uh, with sex work in Canada. Have you done much research on countries like New Zealand where sex mm-hmm. work is legal and have you seen sort of results from that, I guess, you know, work in, in favor of sex workers? So yeah, like a two pointer question there. Yeah. So, you know, uh, why is decriminalization the ideal? Okay. So two things here. First of all, New Zealand decriminalized. They didn't legalize. Yeah. And two lots th- of people who are going to say, oh, what's the difference? There is a difference. There's yeah. a big difference. Um, Germany has also legalized. Uh, there's various parts in Australia that have legalized. Uh, there's the Netherlands that is legalized. Um, legalization, same thing with like in um, counties in, in uh, near Las Vegas. Um, legalization actually maintains criminal law. Mm-hmm. So if you do not have a license and you don't follow the government rules, then the criminal law will still apply to you. So that's really problematic for anybody who can't get a license, which is usually the group of people that we're most concerned are already marginalized in various ways. And so that can actually just exacerbate those conditions. And that's where we've seen, for example, in Europe, legalization has actually possibly been a contributing factor to increasing rates of trafficking. Mm decriminalization on the other hand takes it out of the criminal realm so that means that whether or not there are business laws that you have to abide by the criminal law can't apply specifically to the commercial sex industry now remember that it's the same thing in canada we actually have so many laws that you could use right there's criminal law relating to assault there's criminal law relating to sexual assault there's criminal law relating to exploitation there's criminal law relating to theft there's criminal law in so many different ways that can be used it doesn't need to be in a targeted manner specific to the commercial sex industry so what new zealand did is they removed it from the criminal realm and then they worked with sex workers. They had an advisory council to come up with various different ways that people could work without there being even um, uh, business law in the context of corporations. So they said if there's only like four sex workers working together, they call it a small business. And it actually operates outside of the realm of business law because it's basically a home business. So they said for those individuals, they're not the ones who are necessarily going to need by, to abide by some of these regulations. But larger businesses like brothels, for example, they do have some particular regulations they have to abide by. But they also made condom use mandatory across the board. And they made it mandatory for anybody who is responsible or in charge of other sex workers. That individual has to have a criminal record check before they can get a license. So not the sex workers but the person who is in power over sex workers. And so they did this as a way to try to equalize some of the power dynamics, but also to recognize the labor dimensions involved. This also opens it up to human rights tribunal cases. So you can now bring forward cases under human rights law, under employment standards law that you could not bring forward before. And now sex workers can use the police without fear that there's going to be any repercussions on themselves. So what they've seen in New Zealand is that For a lot of workers, actually not a huge amount changed. (laughs) I mean, the reality for a lot of people who are working off street is they're already not the ones who are targeted by the police. So yes, you feel stigma, you feel fear sometimes, you might change some of your business practices, but you're not necessarily in contact with police ever in your sex working career. So for those type of privileged sex workers, um, decriminalization or criminalization doesn't really have a humongous impact immediately on your day-to-day because you already were de facto not being targeted by the law. The people it has the most impact on are those individuals who are most marginalized. So your street entrenched workers, the individuals who aren't going to get jobs in these brothels for the most part, because maybe they don't present in a binary acceptable fashion, right? Most brothel owners are probably not going to hire you. Um, If you've had uh, decades of addiction and health issues, um, you're probably not going to get hired in some of these particular places. So that limits your options. Um, But that's where they have now being able to create other forms of uh, co-ops and various different spaces where people can bring clients to safer indoor venues uh, without having to worry about that space then being converted into some kind of a brothel so that the government allows that. Does that answer everything? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it does. It does, 100%. So, I mean, I feel like this is obvious. <laughs> But it's not, sadly, to a lot of people. So from a research standpoint, 
Um, are there benefits to commercial sex work um, existing? <laughs> and and if so, what are they? Yeah, it's, I've got. Um, I'm actually co-authoring an article right now with uh, Dr. Raven Bowen, uh, who is an alumni from SFU, and then went and did her her PhD in the UK. And uh, she and I have had similar data sets where we both looked at offshore workers, and and one of the things that we both sat down and talked about was how little talk there is in the academic discourse about all the contributions that sex workers actually create in society. And so that's that's an, an upcoming journal article that we are in the process of finishing up, and then publishing at some point. Um, but some of the things that, that we found in, in our work are the, the contributions that sex workers make in terms of finances, for one thing. Um, it's, it's, it's labor. <laughs> it's income. Um, and if people are and most often what you'll actually see too is that a lot of sex workers pay taxes. Their work is legal. Too much taxes. Form, and they have <laughs> interest. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you can have a whole episode on taxes. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a source of income, and it's a, it's a source of income that helps many people. Sex workers are parents, right? So we have lots of people who are actually able to, they would argue, be better parents because they're able to make their work fit into their parenting life. So, for example, they don't have to necessarily work eight to 10 hours in a job that pays minimum wage because they can work two hours while kids are at school and make it the same amount of money or more. So that, that to me seems like when you're looking at logic, which one makes the most sense here? Um, other benefits to the work include what people are actually receiving in terms of pleasure and touch and intimacy. And I think those are pieces that we don't talk about enough either. Um, what, what sex workers provide their clients is for, and I'm not saying every case. Sometimes there's literally the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, out. Um, but in a lot of other circumstances, yes, very out. Um, but in other circumstances, it is this intimacy care. And I've heard that from so many sex workers, that a huge chunk of their work is about simply providing somebody an hour or two hours of intimate care. And that could be anyone from somebody who's a widow whose partner has died and they were with that person for 50 years, you know, to somebody who is, I had one woman who, uh, one of her clients, she, told me, she tells a story every time she come to my classes. She says, one of her clients was a quadriplegic. Um, he was uh, hurt uh, when he was only 19 years old in hockey, went head first into the boards. Um, and uh, so she got hired by his nurse and the family's permission to basically hop on his bed, put her boobs in his face, shake him all around a little bit and gave that guy the happiest what about three seconds of his uh, <laughs> of his month really and she said it was such a privilege to be able to do that and there was just no way that she could understand how that was in any any realm a bad thing to do mm -hmm. um and so i mean and those are maybe extreme examples but i would argue that if we think about what we know in terms of psychology and what people are going through right now with covid mm -hmm. isolation is not good for people Right? And how many people are missing touch and don't have it in their regular lives? So if this is a piece that sex workers can offer to clients, or if it's just about getting off and feeling happy, how bad is that as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. There's, there's so much like positive effects of, of yeah, human, human touch and orgasms and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, as you were saying, like to some people it isn't, uh, you don't have the same opportunity to get that yeah. rec sex um, as other, other people do. And I just, yeah, I do not understand how uh, purchasing it is could possibly be a bad thing, especially when, you know. Consenting adults. Yeah, exactly. When it's between, like, consenting adults. Like, I'm sure if you mm -hmm. asked a bunch of your friends if they could have X amount of money for the people that they freely slept with, um, just, like, handed to them, they would take it. Yeah. That's one of the things I said to a girlfriend of mine who is a prostitute, full-service sex worker. And uh, she's like, you know, it bothers me when people are like, oh, you fuck for money. Say, be, You should say, no, I just don't have sex for free. Like, that's what you should say. Like, And then if someone is going to be rude to you, just be like, ooh, you you don't get paid? You do that for free? <laughs> you Like, people, I yeah. think, for some reason, think getting paid negates the willingness. Um you know, mm -hmm. the big thing is consent when it's a, when it's, you know, it should be as always. Um, so, you know, if they're consensually sleeping with these people, um, why not get paid for it? <laughs> um, 
And I would say that there's so many sex workers who would, who would say to you that, Hey, you know what? Um, I'm just doing the same thing a lot of other people are doing. I'm just taking money instead of, for example, housing. Oh, or instead of that dinner out, you can just pay me the cash. Thank you very much. Yeah. Right? Like, and it is, we have these weird ideas of what consideration and money really are. But if you look even at the history of marriage, you know, what has marriage traditionally been for women but shelter and economic security? Mm-hmm. Right? Definitely. So the fact that you're just doing it on a more individualized basis and, and several clients, you know, it's essentially the same kind of activity for many people. Obviously there's lots of people who have different experiences, but yeah, yeah I would say that there's, you know, and the other part there is, is, okay. So is the state telling us then that women ought to be providing the services for free, mm. that we ought to be freer with whom and that, that other people are supposed to just, are they entitled to this from us without consideration or giving back. And I would say there's problems with that one too. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. Guys have this entire, well, I say guys very generally, cis men. Typically <laughs> men have this entitlement that if yeah. they buy some, a girl some drinks or take her out for dinner or go on enough dates that he will receive, um, yeah. you know, intercourse. I just say, get the money up front, waste no time. Yeah. You're good. <laughs> and then go have dinner with your girlfriends. You yeah. Know, like, Hang out with um, people that you want to hang out with. Like. And, you know, I always say, like I've said many times before, I think everyone's a prostitute in, in some way, shape, or form. And the <laughs> only difference between my girlfriends who are full-service sex workers and the girl who, you know, meets Chad at the bar and goes for a drink is that, you know, she's a gin and tonic prostitute. Like, you know, she had sex with them for the $7 gin and tonic, and you got your 7 Gs. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> neither is right nor wrong, but let's not, you know, uh, let's call it what it is. I would say, too, and something else I hear from sex workers is that they honestly feel half the time that they are the ones who save marriages, which is so opposite from what we often hear from people who, you know, wives in particular. And again, it's a general category. I'm one of those individuals, too, so hey, I get to use the language. Um, I hate being called wife, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but this whole idea that, that sex workers are after your man, right, that they're going to they're gonna break up marriages. Honestly, what I hear from sex workers is they're the reason the marriages survive because sex workers are typically very clear about the terms of an encounter. It's not about an emotional attachment. And in fact, you have to work your ass off sometimes to make sure that the other party understands um, that there is no emotional entanglement here. It's a service that's being provided. And I think that there are sometimes parts and times and periods and in people's relationships and marriages where the sexual element is not necessarily a huge part, right? I'm thinking particularly people are going through some kind of medical issue um, or they're just no longer interested in each other that way. Um, just because one member of the relationship isn't interested in, in that doesn't mean the other member's not. So I know lots of sex workers who argue and who would state that their clients are actually a couple. They get paid by the, by the, by the two of them to provide services to one individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's just a reality of some people's relationships. Yeah. I, I, and it's actually a lot more common than you would think. Um, one of my girlfriends gets paid by her really good girlfriend to have sex with her partner. You know, they're young. They're in their 20s. And she's just like, you know, I, you know, we have kids. I'm busy. I get off work. I don't want to put out. She's like, he's liked you forever. I'll pay you and you can do, you can do my job for me <laughs> pretty much. So yeah, she pays her girlfriend to have sex with her husband. And, you know, they're all good. They don't have a throuple. It's nothing like that. It's just here and there where she's too tired to you know, do put the, put the work in, in the relationship in that aspect. And she's right. tired of taking care of the kids. Yeah. Um, mom needs a break. <laughs> yeah. Mommy needs, yeah. Some wine she and some me time. Uh, a nanny and a six worker. And she just needs to she's take good. a day. <laughs> she's good. A pet sitter done. <laughs> 100%. Okay guys, that's it for the first part of our interview with Tamara. And we are going to add the second part in as well. And the second part will be where we address all the listener questions you guys sent in and Tamara will give you all her fabulous answers. So make sure to go check that out. And as always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts now. So make sure to go listen, rate, review, subscribe, show us all the love and go enjoy part two. 